We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith that... the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Lord, teach us today what is so special about the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please be seated? As we jump right in in verse 1, if you had any doubt or any wonder about who wrote Colossians, it is verse 1, chapter 1, word 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he announces himself, and the reason he does that is because he wants to make sure that the church, when they read read this, understand that it's written by someone who has the authority to write it, that he is an apostle, meaning that he is called by God. Let me tell you first and foremost that the age of the apostle was the first century, that Paul and Jesus' disciples that he called while on earth were the apostles and were given apostolic authority that existed only among that group of men, and God inspired them to write. So what you're reading today are not just Paul's ideas, but they are the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God written by the power of the Holy Spirit through men and their personalities to be communicated to a first century church that then would reverberate through the generations and would remain inerrant, inspired, infallible, and authoritative through all of the earth and through all of history. And when time is no more, not one iota of Scripture will have fallen and it will still be the Word of God, which is why we study it and why we walk through books of the Bible. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he writes, and he writes to this church in Colossae, and he mentions that he is there and also with Timothy, and he says this, to the, whole, the faith, holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, we could spend an entire sermon, maybe three or four sermons, just on the first two verses because of the words that jump out. But I want us to specifically look at one prepositional phrase that is in this verse, and then I want to look at one word that you find uh, as we go into the introduction. It's easy sometimes just to blow through these introductions, but if Christ really is the center of our joy, if He really is supreme, then we've got to understand a couple of phrases. Number one is the phrase, the prepositional phrase that you see there, in Christ. You see, Paul believed that these people, these believers at Colossae were actually saved. They were redeemed. They were born again. And the reason we know that is because he uses this one little phrase that they are in Christ. So I want you to fill in this sentence for me. Fill in this sentence. If someone was going to describe me, the first thing or the most important thing I would want them to say about me would be what? What would be the one thing? You, you, you don't get anything else. And I know you've got resumes, and, and some of you are thinking, well, I'd want them to tell everybody how good-looking I was. 
Well, I certainly want everybody to tell how bright I am. I don't want to tell them what an incredible athlete I am. I'd want to tell them what a fantastic sense of humor I have. I'd want them to know about all my accomplishments. I'd want them to know about my education. I'd want them to know about my wealth. I'd want them to know all of those things. I want you to I want to tell you that the reason that this phrase is important is that for every single one of you, you shouldn't leave this room without being able to answer that question. And the most important thing, if you're a believer, the greatest thing that anyone could ever say about you is that you are in Christ. Let me explain to you how big a deal this was in the first century. In in the Roman times, they had what they were called catacombs or the tombs. And inside the tombs, it wasn't like the way we do it. If you go to the cemetery today, you'll see some gigantic headstones, granite and marble, and there'll be pictures of outdoor scenes on them. You've seen these, and they'll be sometimes etched with different athletic events that are on there, and there will be names and entire Bible verses, and you've got the dates that are on there. And if you went to the Roman catacombs, there was, if you were to find someone who was a believer, you would find one and sometimes two phrases, and that's all you would find on the tomb. And the only thing that you would find on the tomb, now watch this, not a name, not a birth date, and not when they died. The only thing you would find on the tomb is this one prepositional phrase, in Christo. In Christo means in Christ. And then on some of them, the only other thing you would have written if they had in Christo was this other phrase, in pace. In pace means in peace, in Christ and in peace. And I couldn't help but as I was studying this, think about something. If you're going to stand over my grave one day, if you're going to stand over the grave of anyone that you love, the greatest thing that we can know about that person is not their accomplishments. It's not going to be how much they've done or how many trips they've taken or what they've done in their life or the money that they made or the jobs that they held or their athletic prowess or their report card. The most important thing that you can know about any individual definitively is that you would be able to walk away from that grave and be able to say that person was in Christ. And the reason that they were in Christ is also the reason that they were in peace, which leads us to the second part of this introduction, and don't blow by it. I I know that probably when you write somebody something, we've kind of gotten away from letter writing in these days. I I I think with technology, it would be a huge benefit for us to get back to actually writing people things. But probably when you write things, my guess is that you have a natural habit of including something at the beginning. And maybe you'd say something like, Dear Bradley, I hope you and Brandy are doing well. I've been thinking about the girls. I've been praying for you. Maybe it is that you would have a specific thing that you would automatically go to. So it's easy to blow by this because you think, well, maybe that's Paul's go-to. Grace and peace to you. Because if you read Paul's letters, it's all over the place, right? Read through the New Testament. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. So you'd be tempted to think that he just throws it in there. But in today's climate, I I think that phrase is enormous, and here's why it's enormous. We have thousands of people, millions of people, that are looking for peace everywhere, are they not? We hear all the time that people are anxious and that people are depressed and that people are looking for peace. They're trying to find inner peace and they're trying to find outer peace and they're trying to find peace at home and peace in family and peace at school and they're just looking for peace. People are saying, can I just get some peace? And the reason that the people in our world are never going to find the peace they seek is because you cannot have peace without grace. 
That's the reason Paul always says grace and peace to you. Never peace and grace to you because grace always comes before peace. Because the only way that you're ever going to have peace is if you've experienced grace. And the only reason I have any peace at all is because I'm in Christ. And the reason that I'm in Christ is because I've experienced the grace of God. What is the grace of God? It is God giving me something that I do not deserve. You say, what did God give you? We sang about it and sang about it and sang about it this morning. Nothing but the blood of Jesus is what cleanses my soul. There is power, power, wonder-working power. That is the grace of God applied to me that I couldn't earn, that I didn't deserve, and it's only because of the blood of Jesus applied by His amazing grace that I can say I have peace with God, and the only reason I have peace with men is because I have peace with God. Man, there's a lot in that little introduction. Amen? Let's get to the prayer. When you get into verses 3 through 8, we learn how Paul prayed for a church. We learn how we ought to pray for our church, and we learn how we ought to pray for each other because you can think of a hundred different things to pray for for people, but if when we're praying it's not rooted in the power of the gospel, then we've missed how important the gospel really is. You hear the word gospel, 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 gospel. In the New Testament, it's the word kerygma. It means good news. It's used 76 different times in the New Testament, so it has to be important. What is, when we understand the gospel, why is it that Paul is so centered on the gospel and what is so special about the gospel? He's going to answer that in two specific ways this morning, and I want you to see them. First of all, the gospel is special for what it produces. The gospel is special for what it produces. When you see in verses 3 through 5, after he gets through thanking God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because God is the source of the gospel. Sometimes people miss that. Sometimes in an age of false theology, we think that, and, and sometimes we hear, we say, well, I, I got myself saved or, or I got saved. You didn't do anything. If you were saved, the only reason you were saved is because He first loved you. And so your first thanksgiving is not even to a person, even if that person shared the gospel with you. The first thanksgiving is thanks be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because John 3.16, He gave His only begotten Son that we should not perish but have eternal life. So the first thing I ought to do when I pray is to thank God for Jesus. The first thing I ought to do is thank God that He saved me. The first thing that I ought to do is bow my head and say, now I know i got a lot of problems that I need to get to, but before I get to those, let me tell you, thank you first. And it's amazing that if you'll start with thanking God and praising God, that it will frame every other prayer that you have. Because sometimes you forget about all the stuff you were going to complain about because you realize, oh wow, what a God I have. What grace and what peace I have in Christ. But he thanks God, and he thanks God because the gospel has produced in the people of Colossae three things specifically. And you see these things over and over again as core elements or the gospel essentials. In other words, if these three things do not exist in your life, then you haven't experienced the power of the gospel. And they are faith, hope, and love. Now, Paul lists them in this passage in the order faith, love, then hope, faith, love, then hope. So that's the way we're going to walk through them. But you know that all throughout Paul's writings, he talks about these three crucial elements. And the first of those elements is faith. Because without faith, there is no Christian experience. Without faith, there's no way to be saved. Without faith, there's no way to be in Christ. But what is saving faith? Too many people, listen to me, 
Too many people think they're saved that are lost, and they will tell you it is because they have faith. But it is possible to have faith and not have a biblical saving faith. Because if you're to ask a follow-up question, what is saving faith? People will say, well, it's why I believe in God. Now, some of you are going, I know the answer to this. You can't just believe in God. You've got to believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is not enough. Well, I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. That's still not saving faith. You see, the Bible defines that faith, saving faith, what Paul's talking about here in Colossians 1, requires two specific ingredients. And these are the ingredients of the gospel that are the most ignored. Number one is repentance, and number two is obedience. There's a lot of people that want to be saved by faith that doesn't include repentance and obedience. You're not saved. And the reason is, is because repentance means that I have trusted Christ as the Lord of my life, and for Him to be Lord, I have to repent of my sin. To repent of your sin, you say, well, I've done that. I've told Him I'm sorry. There's a difference in telling God you're sorry for your sins and repenting of your sin. Biblical saving faith is, God, not only am I sorry for my sin, but I'm turning from my sin. And when I turn from my sin, it means I'm now going to be obedient. So there is saving faith. But there seems to be a movement that is afoot, not just in Christian circles, but in the world at large, that just tells you it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something, which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Many of you know people or may be involved in a 12-step program. I am pro-12-step programs. I am pro-Alcoholics Anonymous. I am pro-Gamblers Anonymous. I am pro-all of those things. But the one issue I take sometimes is that People are invited in and saying, you have to have a higher power. Well, that's fine to have a higher power, but if your higher power is something that can't deliver the results that only God can deliver, then you've placed your faith in something that cannot give you what your deepest need is. Let me try to explain this a little bit better. When we think about the need for faith to be in the proper object, or either it's worthless, Sometimes people will argue to us that it doesn't matter what we believe as long as we're sincere, but you wouldn't apply that rationale and you wouldn't apply that logic to anything else in your life. You wouldn't say, it doesn't really matter whether or not the brakes work on my car or not, I'm just going to believe that they will. And the reason for this is we understand that the object of faith is the only reason to have faith. If the object of our faith is not worthy of faith, then the Bible says that you're a fool to place your faith in it. And the other line of thinking that seems to persist today is that the power is in the faith itself. It's not in the object, it's just in having faith. So actually, there's an entire movement of people that are saying you need to have faith in faith. Just as long as you believe, the power is in the belief. The power is not ever in the belief. The power is in the object of the belief. And if the object of the belief is not the person and work of Christ, then it's going to fail. I, I, I read one of the most insightful and disturbing essays the other day by a guy who's a, he's a professor, he's an author, he's a physicist at MIT. Um, his name is Alan Lightman. Um, at best, he's an agnostic, probably an atheist. And he describes his daughter's wedding, which ought to be an incredibly happy day. But he said, I started walking down the aisle and we were doing it the traditional way. And they had the arch behind them. And I'm walking down the aisle with my daughter. 
He said, and to be honest, I just wanted to stop the whole thing. He said, I wanted to go back in time. My daughter was 30 years old, and I didn't want to walk her down the aisle. I wanted her to be 10 years old again. I wanted to be back on the beach with her missing her two front teeth and her holding a starfish that was bigger than herself. I wanted to go back because when I looked over at her and she was smiling and happy, but I noticed that she had just some lines just in the side of her face. And I realized it wasn't just me getting older, that my daughter was getting older too. And I recognized that we were not only marching towards that altar, but we were all marching. This is on a wedding day. We were all marching towards a day where we wouldn't exist anymore. He said, and I began to weep walking my daughter down the aisle, but I wasn't weeping just for my daughter. I wept because I realized that one day, not only was I going to die, but this little girl who had had no teeth that was holding a starfish that stood on the beach, that she was going to die too. And we were just going to go into an abyss of nothingness. And it... I would no longer exist. And not only would my body no longer exist, but my mind would no longer exist and my thoughts would no longer exist and neither would my daughters. And he said, I about came to pieces and I had a crisis because in my mind, that's what I believed that there was no God and that there was no afterlife. But something in my soul in that moment said, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. There's got to be more. And friends, when you get right down to it, you either have faith in nothing or you have faith in something. And if you're going to have faith in something, why not the God who is? Why not the all-existent Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end? So faith, faith, friends, is a cornerstone. But it's not just faith. It's also love. Among these, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, Paul said. It's love for God is expressed in how we love each other. Faith, love, and then hope. But biblically, what is hope? If I said I have hope, what am I saying? Well, if we use that word in English, most of the time we're saying, I hope we have something good for lunch. I hope the traffic's not too bad, right? Hope. Biblical hope is different because it is a assuredness. In fact, faith and hope are so intertwined, you can't have hope without having faith, and you can't have faith without having hope. So to understand hope and understand what that really is, it's the expectation of a future good. It's that we know that there is something better in store for us, that we know that there's a result of hope is brings a willingness to sacrifice the present on the altar of the future, that I'm willing to sacrifice the present on the altar of the future. Now, that goes completely contrary to what the world tells everyone, and that is to sacrifice the future on the altar of the temporary. In other words, just enjoy now and worry about tomorrow tomorrow. But for someone who is in Christ, that's ridiculous because we know what it is that we hope for, what it is that we long for. We were singing today and many of you emphatically said amen that Jesus is the center of your joy. But how many of you know that sometime this week you're going to get off center? Has that ever happened to some of you? You get thrown off. And so you've got to come back and we've got to recenter. It's one of the reasons that church is important. One of the reasons that Bible study is important because I've got to recenter on the center of that joy all of the time. But I love, there, there's an apologist, Peter Crift, and he says this. He, he says the best way to understand it is this. He said, if God somehow was able to take you and, and to place you in, 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 a, in a machine and then transport you 
to heaven and you were to get a glimpse of the glories and wonder of what it looks like in a place with no more sickness and no more pain and no more tears and no more heartache, no more depression, no more stress and no more addiction and no more marital problems and no more prodigal children and all of the things that go with that. And you were able to just get a glimpse of that. What would it look like when you came back to earth? Probably your life would be completely reframed because of this new hope you had on what was to come. But he said, most of us are, are like this. And, and this is something that I can sink my teeth into. I understand this completely. He said, this is how most of you are. Imagine an eight-year-old child. And that eight-year-old child has a, a, a toy truck. And he is sitting in the den floor and he's playing with his toy truck. And as he's playing with his toy tr truck, both of the axles break on the truck. And so now the truck won't go anymore and he can't roll the truck. And like only an eight-year-old could do, he scratches out a clean place and throws a fit. He's going crazy. My truck's going fix my truck. Screaming, banging the truck, calling his dad. So his dad comes over and he says, son, there's something you need to know I just found out. You have an uncle that we didn't even know anything about, but he has passed away and he has left you as the sole beneficiary of $10 million. What is that eight-year-old going to do? That eight-year-old is going to continue screaming, I want my truck fixed. Why? because he does not have the wisdom or the maturity or the insight to understand what he was just told and how good things are going to be and that he could buy a million trucks if he wanted to now. And sometimes we're just like that eight-year-old in the floor. Something happens and we forget what it is that the inheritance that we've been promised and what we've got in the future and we don't allow it to frame that for ourselves. So there's faith, there's love, and there's hope, there's hope that make up what the gospel produces. But the gospel is also special, number two, because of how it expands. Watch in verses six through eight how it talks about how the gospel expands. It says there in verse six, all over the world this gospel is buried fruit. It's growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So this is really incredible. He's reminding them of what all of us need to be reminded of. We live in a day in which it seems like everything we hear is negative about the church. Everything we hear is negative about culture. Everything we hear about this generation, that it's going to hell in a handbasket, that everything that seems that we hear is negative. And sometimes we need to come back to Colossians 1, 6 through 8, and remember that since the moment that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that for over 2,000 years, the gospel has been rapidly expanding, that it has been growing and growing and growing Growing. And the growth it's talking about certainly is in the number of people that have become believers, but it's also talking about the growth in the individual people at Colossae. How many of you know that since you have been saved, you have grown in Christ, that you have matured in Christ, that you have gotten closer to God in Christ, that you have loved the Word of God more? That is the bearing fruit of the gospel in your individual life. But then I couldn't help but think about it. How incredible is this? 
This man Epaphras visits Paul. Paul does what Paul does and shares the gospel with Epaphras. Epaphras gets radically saved, gives his life to Jesus. Epaphras goes home and does what you do when you get radically saved. He tells people this kerygma, this good news, this gospel, and those people say, I want what you've got. Now those people are in Christ. Now a church is being written to. And, and, and I was just blown away by this this week. I stopped for just a minute and thought about something. I, I can remember being in Sunday school at eight, nine years old, and people sharing the gospel with me. I can remember them giving me a survival kit at my church, and I remember going to talk to our pastor about the gospel, and I can remember being in his office, and I can remember praying to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And all of a sudden, it just hit me that there's so many of us, and a lot of people in here, there's nothing wrong with this, but we're into this Ancestry.com. We've got people that are trying to figure out who their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was, and you're trying to to figure out if you came over on the Mayflower or you're trying to figure out what that looks like. But I want you to think about this for just a moment. Let's put your genealogy, your biological genealogy aside for just a moment and, and just be creative with me. If you're in Christ, if you're a believer, if you're redeemed, if you're born again, then someone led you to Jesus. Someone explained the gospel to you, and out of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you were led to Christ. But if you think about that person, someone loved them enough to share the gospel with them, and someone loved them enough to share the gospel with them. And if we went all the way back, if we were able to do your spiritual genealogy, what we would find is that it would go all the way back to someone in the first century, maybe even Epaphras himself, because you would recognize that the only reason that anybody got saved is because someone shared with them. Friends, we're a part of a 2,000-year lineage, and we have been given a trust, and now it's our job, just like it was Epaphras' job, to take the pure gospel, the truth, and share with people how they can be in Christ, because if Jesus tarries, one day it may be 2,000 years from now, and no one will have known my name, and maybe all that sits is a tombstone somewhere, and it says, in Christ, but maybe it would be that somebody in here got saved today and that that person would share with someone else what it means to receive Christ. And maybe 2,000 years from now, there would be someone whose heart would be filled with faith, hope, and love, that they would be in Christ because the grace of God had overwhelmed their life and brought them to peace with God and with man. And it's because you allowed the good news and the power of the gospel to take over your life, and then you paid it forward to someone else. That's the power of the gospel. And that's what it does, and when it produces fruit in the lives of people. Verse 6, and I want you to look at one word, and then we're done. And understood God's grace in all its truth. Very quickly. Either the gospel is true or the gospel is a lie. If the gospel is true, that's on the foundational authority that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross and rose from the dead. If that happened, then that means the gospel is true. If the gospel is true, that means that you are going to one of two places. You are either going to heaven and you have a hope that's been placed in you because of the blood of Jesus and your identity is in Christ, or you're going to hell because you do not know Him. Friends, today there's absolutely no reason not to have in Christ plastered over the soul of your life. There's no reason not to come to Jesus. Today, Jesus can be the center of your joy.